You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. There's a discussion about the title in the arena, which comes from the famous speech given by Theodore Roosevelt. People always remember that phrase in the arena, but they don't remember the title of the actual speech, which was being citizen in a republic. And the theme of that speech is that country, a republic particularly, has to have a core number of people who are willing to take giant risks in order to move things forward. And if people become too risk averse, a particular vitality is lost to the And therefore, people who have risked and lost should be inspiration rather than an object of derision. You have to have people who are able to put themselves out there or else all we're going to get are a string of mediocrities. Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In a regional airport in Bloomington, Illinois, you can share a bench with a defeated presidential candidate. He looks like any other traveler, though his clothes might be dated. He sits with his feet on the suitcase lying in front of him on the floor, waiting for his plane, perhaps, his jacket over his left arm, relaxed, his right arm holding his weary head. He can't tell you anything, of course, because he's made of bronze. But if he could, Adlai Stevenson would say he was governor of Illinois from 1949 to 1953, and he ran twice for president, both times against Dwight Eisenhower, a war hero. And both times, he lost. I don't have to win, he told his advisors once. That might be the strangest thing someone running for president said. But he said it when his advisors asked him to compromise on an issue involving drilling in Texas. That's not important. But Stevenson said, I don't have to win. Who else running for president would say it? He was a quirky guy and a bit passive about politics. And it turns out there was a reason. Adley Stevenson plays a very special role in the pantheon of also rands. He's such a unique figure, you know, to have run against the same, to be a candidate twice against the same opponent and lost, and then to be considered again by a large segment of his party. That's Peter Shea, author of In the Arena, A History of American Presidential Hopefuls. I think Stevenson is a very colorful figure, a man of tremendous qualities. I, I think he certainly inspired a lot of uh, Americans to get involved in politics and become active um, party members. And I think that's his great legacy. Published by Troop Publishing in Chicago, really a book about presidential statues. Interesting. So Stevenson hmm. had a trauma early in his life, which made him reluctant to, to seek power, at least openly. And, uh, and that quality can sometimes inhibit a leader. Sometimes you have to grab, um, you know, the opportunity and move forward. Where Stevenson always wanted to be seen as being invited into power. 
And that passivity, I think, would have hampered him. I don't want to let that hang there. Peter didn't get into it, but the trauma that he's talking about. Um, when Ally Stevenson was a child, there was an accident with a gun in which a cousin of him was killed, and Ally was, say, directly involved. He was not at fault. He was not at fault. He was certainly not charged, nor was anyone in the family charged or anything like that. But uh, a cousin of Stevenson's was killed. It had a traumatic influence on him. Also, his parents had their fair share of problems. Stevenson often took refuge with Grandpa, who was the former vice president, Adlai Stevenson. He admired him, emulated him, gave great speeches, and loved to debate. But as Shea said, he was a bit passive. By the 1950s, though, there's something almost counter-trend about Adlai Stevenson running against Dwight Eisenhower, the hero of World War II, huge advantage in the polls and everything like that, and also the recipient, and Eisenhower really embraced, because other people ran it, a television marketing campaign, which didn't have a lot of substance. It's not like Eisenhower was saying great things. Stevenson was different. He was the anti-candidate candidate, the intellectual. Opponents would end up calling him an egghead. He liked policy. But in the age of television, Stevenson couldn't adjust because he didn't watch it. He didn't watch television. Neither did his friends. He'd rather read The Atlantic or Harper's or the newspapers, perhaps listen to the radio. When he saw the GOP's ads for Eisenhower, the We Like Ike, he reacted, This is the worst thing I have heard of. Selling the presidency like cereal. His TV ad for his campaign would be a long speech. Now, Lou Cowan, his campaign advisor, tried to get Stevenson to do something more palatable to TV watchers. No, Stevenson said, no one-minute spots. Okay, okay, Cowan said. How about at least getting your kids in the ad? How about before you make your long speech, the kids just say, Dad, good luck, and we show them for a second. No, Lou, we don't do that kind of thing in our family. And the worst part about it was, as much as Stevenson didn't like TV, he was actually pretty good at the medium. A leading TV critic, John Crosby, whose articles would be read about television at this time in the 1950s, said there was nothing like Stevenson on TV. He didn't care, so he was totally relaxed while everybody else on the medium was speaking in stilted ways. Even though he had this patrician air about him, he was someone you could connect with. He had great, he had great social skills, and people, people liked him. Stevenson wouldn't know. He didn't watch. Um, I know we say I like I, but a lot of people like Adelaide <laughs> as well. Um, and I, I think that, that's an important quality to, to convey about Stevenson. Stevenson had other qualities. He was politically brave. At a time when few were, he took on McCarthy. And all of those who would make accusations, defamatory hints, whispering campaigns against people, those who tried to silence those with whom they disagreed instead of debate them. He was right when he made these speeches, but as one of Eisenhower's friends said, he'll be easy to beat. He's too good of a speaker. He didn't reach what some called the Saturday evening post crowd. He was more for the Atlantic 
and Harper's crowd. Dilly picked up certain groups, particularly the new young intellectual bunch, those who might have been GIs, but have been studying, looked at problems a different way. Many say that Stevenson had an, an, an influence, including our guest, uh, Peter Shea, and the Democratic Party that followed on Kennedy and Johnson. Certainly, some of their policies were former Stevenson policies. But he didn't get there, and they did. Then there was the shoe. The shoe with the hole in it. A life photographer caught Adlai Stevenson waiting for a plane, his shoe raised with a hole in it. And it looked like a fashion faux pas. I mean, doesn't this man have money for shoes? What the Princeton, after all? The Democrats turned this around, used this, tried to use this, as a badge of honor. Adelaide understands the common man. He's just like the rest of us. The Republicans countered with a flyer featuring a shoe with a hole in it. If you vote Democrat, you'll end up like this, with holes in your shoes. The reality is, neither characterization applied to Stevenson. Stevenson's family was well-to-do. He did go to Princeton. He could afford nice shoes. But there was this weird kind of old ethic going around in the 40s and 50s at this time. Some call it the old Boston shoe way. Those without money, those trying to work up the corporate ladder, would always have new shiny shoes all the time. Those with money didn't have to do that to impress people. The statue in Central Illinois Regional Airport featured in Peter Shea's book, along with statues and memorials of other people who didn't make it to the presidency, has a couple of features. One is Stevenson's very relaxed in it. He's just kind of waiting for a plane like everybody else. It's one of the best statues because it really portrays him in his human dimension, sitting on a bench with his leg up. He's much more relatable than your than your typical statue, which often casts people within a superhuman manner. I like the human dimensions of Stevenson, and I think that's very important. You can sit next to it, and people do. The seat is open, and it depicts him with that hole in his shoe. I'm going to talk a bit with Peter Shea about his book, In the Arena, A History of American Presidential Hopefuls. We are talking with Peter Shea. He is the author of In the Arena, A History of American Presidential Hopefuls. Peter, thanks for joining us on the program today. Happy to be here, Bruce. Topic that you chose, of course, is the hopefuls, those who uh, ran for president but did not become president. Uh, what, what inspired you? Well, you know, uh, my co-contributor, Tom Mayday, is a professional photographer, mm-hmm. and we worked together many years ago on a book called Great Chicago Stories, um, and Chicago is where Tom lives, um, and we're publishing the company that published the book, um, Resides, and he lives near the Stephen Douglas Monument. And um, one day, you know, it, it struck Tom that it was interesting that there's this great monument, very, very impressive one, to Stephen Douglas, to a candidate who is best remembered you know, as not winning a presidential candidacy. And um, Tom had always had an interest in presidential candidates um, as an American studies major in college. And um, he thought, you know, the topic of monuments to people who did not win the presidency is, is an interesting subject. And so he approached me, he said, would you like to do a book project about people who didn't become president and the monuments that have been dedicated to them? 
And I said, sure, it would be fun. And we probably wouldn't have much competition. So that would make it easy, even easier. Did you find that there was a monument of some type for, for, for each of them? Um, for many of them, in some cases, it was very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, you know, a few cases where we simply had to, I think, resort to their headstone. Some of them didn't have monuments. Um, some of them had streets named after them. A few of them who are quite prominent in their age do have monuments. Um, it certainly helps if you were a candidate in the 19th century, a time when people gave more thought to the importance of having monuments. Um, later on, it becomes less of a cultural um, priority. Do you have a particular favorite candidate who ran for the presidency and lost? Yeah, I like a lot of them. And, you know, what strikes me is that there there were certainly periods in time when there was enough leadership talent to go around where we had a number of good people to choose from. I think um, Winfield Scott Hancock would have made a very good president. I think Charles Evan Hughes would have made a very good president. I think think, uh, Thomas Dewey would have made a good president. And I say that as a Harry Truman fan. Can't help but contrast it with the current period of time when there seems to be um, a poverty of talent among our major political parties for our national figures. And you wonder, you know, what's what what has changed um, that has led us to this point? Yeah, Winfield Scott Hancock, I think it's tempting to envision a country that perhaps gets united faster because of um, his presence, where he was a Democrat, but he'd also been a union general. So, you know, I had this political support in the South and then in the North and maybe maybe able to really unite the country as and then, of course, um, you might have, you know, it's always alt history, but you might have avoided the terrible situation with Garfield and getting assassinated because you wouldn't have had the stalwarts and the exact same fight between the, the stalwarts and half breeds that uh, that occurred that could have led to to the assassination or that crazy man might have found some reason to go after Hancock. Who knows? But uh, yeah, it, it, it is tempting. And Hughes, yeah, very well-respected guy. Uh, I assume he found it. I assume there was some statuing of, of, of Hughes. I think what we found for Hughes, if I recall, was there's a hall mm. in um, a law school. I have to check uh, yeah. named after him. And I think also a dormitory. I don't think we ever found a statue. But I think he was honored in places um, uh, with a legal profession um, gathered because he was obviously a very one of the highest regarded lawyers in the country. And I, if I recall correctly, his son also became solicitor general of the United States. So it was a, it was a family with talent for the law. That was one of the, I think, uh, elections where there was a real twinning, mm-hmm. where he and Woodrow Wilson resembled one another to a tremendous degree. I think in Hughes' case, if he had won, he wouldn't have left behind any bold foreign policy um, platform the way uh, Wilson did. But he obviously would have lived longer, and we probably would have been spared the presidency of Warren Harding. Yeah, I think I get, those are great. And that's the thing, the trouble with all history, right? It's always like you are you change one thing and then a, a whole set of other dominoes fall. But in this case, good ones, because that whole teapot dome mess um, and, and one figures, yeah, you wouldn't have health issues, uh, Wilson, which caused so many problems. And while introducing a form of, you know, way of resolving disputes around the world is commendable, it didn't work at its time and we didn't join it at its time. So maybe Hughes either doesn't come up with as 
large of a plan or politically can sell one better. What about uh, Stevenson Eisenhower? Any thoughts there? Yes, you know, Adley Stevenson plays a very special role in the pantheon of also-rans. He's such a unique figure, you know, to run against the same, to be a candidate twice against the same opponent. I I think he certainly inspired a lot of uh, Americans to get involved in politics and become active um, party members. I think that's his great legacy. Whether or not he would have been as good a president as Eisenhower, uh, I'm, I'm inclined to think not so much. You know, many years ago, there was this wonderful study of, of Stevenson done by Gary Wills. And Wills drew a parallel between Stevenson and Franklin Roosevelt, who many people saw, he saw, they saw him as the natural inheritor of the Roosevelt mantle. Um, but Wills pointed out that Stevenson, unlike Roosevelt, didn't have a crucible moment where he really matured from being a talented but somewhat narcissistic figure the way Roosevelt did because of um, polio. Um, and again, I, I think on, on another level, he was, he just, he lacks certain qualities that are really effective leader, particularly during the Cold War. I think he would have, I, I think he would have been found wanting. I appreciate that. I think that Truman was a little sorry that he suggested him uh, in 52, because after suggesting him and helping him kind of getting the, the nomination there, Stevenson was reluctant to embrace Truman, to defend his White House, at least to Truman's, the, the degree Truman wanted. And then when 56 comes around, you know, it was Stevenson again, but I don't think Truman was particularly thrilled um, of, about the him running again and, and about his uh, inability to fight as a candidate. You know, Truman wanted a fighter like him. Timings is great right now because, I mean, in 56, there's kind of a moment where Soviet tanks move into Hungary in Hungary, 56. Yeah. And a bolder candidate might have had an opportunity against Eisenhower because we definitely made an, uh, a, a decision as a country that, that we would observe um, the zones and that Hungary wasn't in it, and uh, we weren't going to, you know, do anything in terms of a show of force. Now, whether Stevenson would have either, but the the fact remains, as a candidate, he didn't do much on that on that issue that was possibly handed to him. Probably because he agreed with the position of um, of being a little more passive about it. Uh, so it's an interesting time. You did find a statue of. Of Stevenson, I see in the book. Yeah, uh, it's an airport, and it's a wonderful. Even though he had this patrician air about him, he was someone you could connect with. He had great, he had great social skills, and people people liked him. Um, I know we say I like I, but a lot of people like Adelaide <laughs> as well. Um, and I, I think that that's an important quality to to convey about Stevenson. You know, we look back on the Eisenhower years and say, "Oh, that was so dull." But you know what? I think we need a little dullness in the 50s. I think the world had been a little bit too exciting. And mm. I think after um, so many years in power, the Democrats really needed to, to be out of the White House for a decade in order to regroup. Because again, if you have one party in power for too long, they just become very complacent. We've seen it over and over. And I think they needed that time that, that on the bench um, before they could come back. I thought I'd jump in a bit here. I made a point about um, 1956, the second time Stevenson ran against Eisenhower. And um, 
I just wanted to clarify because it has some meaning with today's events and without taking a lot of time discussing it. But Hungary's government decided it wanted independence from Soviet influence. And the Soviet Union using a guise of a group of concerned nations, all of which were countries like Romania and East Germany and China that were in the Soviet orbit enough at that time, bringing Hungary back, sent Soviet tanks into Budapest and crushed a very violent rebellion and a very violent stamping down of that rebellion. It happens in the middle of a presidential campaign. And I mean, really in the closing weeks. And that's so rare in American politics. And only the fact that Stevenson was so far behind that it didn't matter as much as it might have. But there was a little glimmer of a moment where Eisenhower kind of got caught in a policy. He couldn't speak out against the Soviets because in the Suez, he was aligned with the Soviets. I mean, that was one of the reasons. Candidate Stevenson had a problem because he had already spoken against the liberation policy of um, John Foster Dulles in the Eisenhower administration, that they were even talking about possibly trying to rescue countries uh, in the Iron Curtain. Stevenson was against it early in the year, had made statements about it in 1956 early on, saying that you're going to scare the Allies. Britain was very much against it, something that was going to cause unnecessary bloodshed. And so it was difficult for Stevenson then to come in the middle of the campaign and say, hey, you should have intervened in Budapest. He tried by the time you get to the the, the waning days of the election and people are really upset. In the end, on this issue, as with so many things, he was just an ineffective, if unique, candidate for president. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts.
Did you uh, was the the Irving Stone book? Uh, they also ran any any influence there? Yes, I read they also ran, and so did um, uh, my co-contributor Tom Mayday. In fact, Tom introduced me to the book, and it was on my mind a lot um, when I was writing this book. I had a copy of it, um, a well-worn copy in the first two years of the project. I don't know what it's happened to, but um, it was really inspiring, and um, I, I really enjoyed Stone's take um, on some of the canons. I didn't always agree with him. Yeah, um, sometimes I think he he was he flattered. Some of the um, losing candidates a little bit too much, but I think he helped set the tempo for for how to talk about these candidates, and that was, I found that very useful as a writer. Yeah, my copy of the book is it, it literally fell apart on me. It had turned yeah. into chips and garage sale paperback. A good one, a good book. Um, uh, Michael Dukakis writes a foreword for yes. you, and um, I mean, and there's a guy who you know. Seemed to suffer a lot, you know, just a just a terrible loss that kind of everybody watched unfold on television almost. And what does he have to add to to this? Do you think his piece really talked about the human demand? You know, what what do you go through when you run for president? And and uh, you know, Governor Dukakis was you know quite frank about the disappointments of it. But in his case, interestingly enough, he was better prepared because although he was coming off. A, a successful second term as mm-hmm. the governor of Massachusetts it wasn't a consecutive term. He had won and, and served earlier and been very successful, but he hadn't really connected with a lot of voters and he got a little complacent. And so he, he lost his reelection and it was a stunning blow to him. It was really for him. I think that was really the, the, the great painful um, loss in his political career. And so he went into academia for a few years and bided his time and came back and learned from his mistakes and became an even better governor in his second term. So I think better than most candidates, I think Governor Dukakis was psychologically prepared um, for the possibility of losing um, the candidacy, even though he made a, a good faith effort for it. Um, so yeah, you wonder with some of these if they had a chance, you know, if it's a better candidate, if if things could really have changed, or if you know if there wasn't um, a chance of winning some of these elections, if the economy's good, you know, real hard to beat a sitting president. 88 gets to where it was a little bit more of an open ball and one could see it going one way or the other. And that campaign events change things. And yeah, so I remember often uh, when I used to work in New York city, um, passing the Horace Greeley statue and um, thinking about him a lot, and a lot of, um, I, I I think the birds were more interested in the statue than the people sitting there. They may not have known who who he is or what. Yeah, and Greeley is one of those figures who is unique in that he would have been famous even if he hadn't run for president. In fact, running for president was simply the last act of his public life that had been very eventful. He was a, he's a major historical figure. His role in American journalism is well established. Um, the candidacy for president was really almost again, it's a footnote to his long career. And um, and even if he had won, which I would have been extremely unlikely, um, he would have likely died before taking office um, because of his final illness. Um, but again, he was he's a fascinating figure, and I think his great contribution to the American political system was the idea that you could challenge a sitting president even if you belong to the same political party. If you feel that the sitting president is not doing a good enough job, you're not 
necessarily obligated to support them. If you really feel that there has to be a better candidate, you have to put party uh, um, national interest above party unity. I think really in many ways, by setting that president sets the tone for what happens in 1912 with Teddy Roosevelt's bull moose um, separate ticket. Yeah, it was a liberal Republican ticket. And in that vein, the Democrats elected that year, perhaps out of their best shot to win, elected to leave their own party in a sense, leave their partisanship behind. Greeley, I think, of course, he gets tagged, maybe rightly so. Maybe he wasn't speaking out enough against it with the whole um, Ku Klux and the the bad stuff that was going on during Reconstruction with the Democratic Mm -hmm. Party in the South because he's accepting that support. But on the other hand, um, had he won, it wouldn't have been just a typical Southern supporting you know, doe face Democrat winning, he had plans to to change things. And there again might have been this other this 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 moment of um of unity in the country, uh if he had somehow been able to eke out a win. And you know, Grant's second term did get a little did have some issues, uh did have some issues with the use of public funds and maybe you could have avoided some of that. Yeah, so it's interesting to see like what what would have been. But as you say, Given his health, we pr- we would have probably ended up with a obscure Missouri governor as president. Uh, we talked yeah. about um, the Greeley statue, and uh, it really is a terrific statue, even if people are mostly using the park and not thinking about it as, as Greeley Square. Um, what can we say about like the difference between how we look at monuments now or not look at it and in, in many ways, the, the United States in its first century was emulating the European model of venerating the past. And we also had to invent the past. We had to point to, we had to create signifiers to say, these are the people who are models of what we want our public life to be shaped by. So it was very much an idea of creating a, um, a public culture. So there was a utility there, particularly for a young country. A century in, our interest in statues begins to slow down. We're, we're, we're really settled. We know who we are. Um, we still continue to make statues, but it's not as big a deal as it used to be, except in those unusual cases when you're creating a really significant monument, like is the case of the Lincoln Memorial in, in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, there's almost a reflexive, oh, let's put a statue here of so-and-so. But again, statues often fail to do what they're supposed to do, which is to remind people of who someone was because they become part of the landscape. And the peop- and the only ones interested in them are squirrels and, and, um, and pigeons, or at least that was up until recently. One of the interesting thing that, things that happened during the time of this book project was that mm. when we began, uh, public monuments was not a topic of interest to many people. And obviously in the past five years, <laughs> That's changed significantly. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> at least one of the monuments we list in the book uh, has been changed due to those changes. The um, the, the Calhoun um, College at Yale uh, was renamed. And, um, yeah, I mean, of course, now monuments are looked at. It, it, I go back to the Adelaide Stevenson where you had remarked that his the kind of um, statue in motion, in a way, his pose that was more human, you know, might speak about an individual more. We may need in an, in an era where we have um, smartphones and the like, I mean, we may need more of that, like 
Greeley could have been, um, you know, working a printing press or um, with some gesture of, of speech instead of just these very pacific statues that don't say anything. We need something more if statues are going to be done or at least better explanation. And then, yeah, I, I we bring statues up a lot because this book really, uh, it looks like I've mean, got something like 70 um pictures in it you know it look it, it really is kind of a mixture of a history book and a, and a bit of an art book yeah and that's something that um was was doable thanks to trope because of their publishing approach they they often do books um that are uh, heavily art books and um photography so they gave us the opportunity to really do a book that was also both photography and text heavy which I, i'm very appreciative of them and in terms of monuments one neat idea would be to add an augmented reality um, function to monuments so that if you scan it with your phone, you could see the figure move. Um, So if I was going by a Greeley statue and I had my phone and then put the phone over it, I could see Greeley, you know, doing like a a 3D printing press um, and coming alive for a moment. So that would be a really neat thing to happen. And it certainly make it more animated than it has in the past. Yeah, I mean, Um, he's one that it does no justice because... This was one of the first candidates to go on the stump. This is somebody that always would be talking or speaking or having an opinion, but a statue oh, yeah. doesn't <laughs> the statue doesn't do it. You brought up in a previous conversation with me uh, the differences between business failure and political failure and how we how we view those things. Yeah, it's a very peculiar thing about the American temperament. We we relish business failure because we see the opportunity to learn from it and try again. Mm-hmm. But political failure always seems to carry with it a certain stigma. And I don't know why, because it's a place where you can learn from. I mean, just because someone didn't become president of the United States, first of all, it takes enormous courage to even make the run, particularly in, in the modern age. And that uh, that attribute alone should be celebrated and, and examined. Um, but we don't, we, you know, we pride ourselves on, on really recognizing the value of failure as learning experience in other domains, but not politics. And that's unfortunate because some of our best political leaders were people who experienced failure earlier in their lives and they learned from it. Many of our least effective ones were people who, are, who had too much success early in their life and that somewhat spoiled them. And I think of someone like George McClellan, a great example of someone who on his resume, looked like the perfect leadership choice, um, but wasn't. And I think it was because he was paralyzed by fear of um, making a mistake because he had gained so much status early on and he was afraid to risk it by making any major judgments. Um, And I think that really hampered his overall effectiveness as a leader, as well as I think his somewhat distorted self-perceptions. and you compare him to, you know, his military, um, I wouldn't say rival, but the person who really um, supplanted him, Grant, as someone who failed profoundly early in his life, but grew from the experience and was not afraid of taking risks and failing, which was a key to his leadership style. So, I, again, I think that's really there's a lot to be learned from these people. Um, but I do think political failure should not be seen as a kind of scarlet letter phenomenon that we often do, particularly at the, uh, at the um, presidential level. I mean, it takes enormous nerve to even make the attempt, and I think we should always celebrate that. 
Absolutely. And I guess we have a president in office now who comes out of um, having failed, but it isn't it isn't terribly common. Uh, it, it, it's um, he you know, he comes out of uh, having tried to run. Uh, right. And when you brought that up, I, I think about um, there's an old book, an advertising book, Al Rice and Jack Trout and his marketing warfare. It's kind of one of these old books in the 80s talking about business and positioning products. And I remember him saying, like, I would, as a marketing manager, love to have Walter Mondale's, you know, 40 percent. Um, I would <laughs> I would love to have that for a product. But in mm-hmm. politics, all of that is written off when here's a guy who got, you know, um, a very large group of people to agree with him, but is a total and complete failure. Yeah. In terms of politics, it's a very and, and of course, you know, the other issue is that the whole nomination process has changed radically um, in, the, in the past decade. I mean, you know, a decade ago, a book like The Party Decides was considered gospel about how presidential politics are conducted in America, that there's a, a strong vetting process and it has the person has to move up the, the chain of command within a particular political organization. So when someone... Um, like say Donald Trump has no political background, throws his hat into the ring and wins the presidency. You just changed the rules completely about, you know, the presidency in a way that many people find either unsettling or exhilarating, depending upon your point of view. You know, the primaries, uh, I think change everything. You no longer have the, the party elders like an Alton Parker. I don't think, you know, 1904 candidate. I don't think like, comes out of w- would survive any kind of primary test it, it's just merely a a convention choice like well we're not going to give it to william jennings bryan once again so we got to find somebody and here's alton parker i'm jane perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former beijing bureau chief for the new york times i've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places somalia indonesia pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I don't think if it was a rigorous primary, well, you see that the first ones that start coming out of that is, you know, your Wilson. Right, right. right. And Parker, again, Parker really does belong to that earlier generation where the party had so much power and the, and the, and the candidate was chosen based upon what the party leaders consider their interests. Um, um, but somebody as neutral as Parker would, would never make it that far at all. But, at, but for the time and for the moment, he seemed like a very good compromise candidate, um, someone who could turn back the clock, so to speak, because you have like a 30-year period after the Civil War where you don't really have strong chief executives. They're all party mm-hmm. men. And it's the party decides. And then you have figures like Brian and Roosevelt, who are powers under themselves, which is very frightening and threatening to a party establishment. So Parker was an attempt to create a seawall um, to preserve um, the party's power over who became president. And ultimately, he didn't succeed. I don't think he could have. But um, he was their last great attempt to maintain that dominance they had during the Gilded Age. Yeah, made a couple speeches. Had to had a you know a couple of a uh, couple of articles. You know, that's the campaign then. You know, right. a couple speeches nearby his house, and and that's about it. Um, uh, besides what we talked about today, is there anything else they think is important to know about some of these candidates, or is there a candidate that that we haven't discussed that you wanted to point out? I, you know, in the introduction, in, you know, we have an essay at the beginning of the book, that along with the, the piece by Governor Dukakis, um, it's a piece on by Jim Kelly of um, Fordham University. And there's a discussion about the title in the arena, which comes from the, the famous speech given by Theodore Roosevelt. People always remember that phrase in the arena, but they don't remember the title of the actual speech. Which was citizenship in and in being citizen in a republic, and the theme of that speech is that a country, a republic, particularly, has to have a core number of people who are willing to take giant risks in order to move things forward. And if people become too risk averse, a particular vitality is lost to the country, and it's that's bad to any country, but it's particularly bad to a republic, and therefore. People who have risked and lost should be inspiration rather than um, uh, an object of derision. And we have to remember that, particularly in an age when we think that we can um, insulate ourselves from all sorts of risks. Um, and again, in this age when with social media, people are afraid of their perception being shaped one way or the other 24-7 with, with um, the Internet. You have to have people who are able to put themselves out there or else all we're going to get are a string of mediocrities. That's an important point, I think, um, that we have to remember. And I hope people take it away from the book. That's a great point. Totally agree. Uh, well, Peter, thanks so much for, for joining us today on My History Could Beat Up Your Politics. Appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. And uh, the, again, the book can be um, obtained um, from trope.com, T-R-O-P-E, or on Amazon. So if, if people are interested, I hope they go look for it. Okay, great. Yeah, highly, highly recommended. Thanks, Bruce. 
I want to thank Peter Shea for coming on. His book, In the Arena, A History of American Presidential Hopefuls, it has a foreword by 1988 candidate Michael Dukakis, is published by Trope Publishing. Our website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, and I want to thank you for listening.